Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're going to be talking with Majdi Al-Jazuli. He's a fellow at the Rift Valley Institute and a longtime analyst of Sudanese politics. He's on the show to speak with us about the military coup in Sudan and what happens next in the country. Majdi, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Alan. Very pleased to be here. So it seems like this coup in Sudan hasn't exactly gone according to plan and is proving very unpopular. Yet the military and other armed groups have thus far held ranks. Is the coup succeeding or is it still too early to say? I wouldn't measure it with success and failure. The coup took place. I think it's very misleading to to continue talking about coup attempts. I think the immediate objective for many, in my eyes, is a consolidation of leadership in the ruling bloc. And the two years that have passed since the first coup, which was the 11th April 2019 coup, have shown that without centralized leadership, the ruling bloc might fracture altogether and waste its own interests. So in a way, it's a delayed coup d'etat. It's the coup d'etat that began in April 19, when Bashir was deposed, was delayed because of the expansion and the width and the tenacity of the protest movement that forced concessions on the military. And it took its clear form in the, in the coup of 25th October. General Al-Burhan, who is the commander-in-chief of the army, he is making a lot of effort to unify the state apparatus under his leadership. The coercive arm of that apparatus is obviously on his side. There is no signals of fractures within the army or within the militia or within the security. Somebody might say these are three different formations that are competing. But I think one lesson that the three of them came up with from the past two years is that they need to work together. Otherwise, their joint interests might be jeopardized. Of course, some would say, yes, there's a, there are grounds for competition between the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, and the army, which are legitimate. But for the time being, for the sake of the leadership of, of this ruling class, they are on one side, as far as I can judge. The problem that he has is enforcing leadership over the bureaucracy. And a good chunk of that bureaucracy has been well infected by the 2018-19 virus. That's why you see still calls for strikes and strike action even within the state bureaucracy. And he would need to do a lot more convincing to consolidate authority over the state bureaucracy, especially among the middle and the lower ranks of that bureaucracy. And I think that's where his troubles arise. His troubles are not on the side of the military or on the security services. His troubles is how will he be able to manufacture consent in the city? Of course, outside the city, the situation is a bit different because part of the grievance that allowed the coup to succeed is the inability of the FFC to extend a reasonable and workable formula for government in the countryside. What it offered the countryside is a continuation of the militia system. Just to say the the FFC is, of course, the Forces for Freedom and Change, uh, which is the loose coalition of civilian and rebel groups in Sudan that signed that power-sharing deal with the military in 2019. So 
let's walk through some of these actors, because as always in Sudan, there are uh, far more camps and factions than I think initially meets the eye. And you're very good at uh, helping explain Sudanese politics. So, you know, you mentioned uh, three different groups behind the coup. I'm just wondering if you can sort of explain the different actors. Of course, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is the face of this. But who are the Sudanese and the foreign actors who are behind this coup? I mean, in terms of operators, I think the face of the, the coup is General al-Burhan, the commander-in-chief of the army. And the second man is the, the um, continues to... To be in the shadows at the moment, he hasn't spoken, and that's the leader of the Rapid Support Forces. Just to jump in to say that the leader of the Rapid Support Forces is General Hameti, as he's known. And the RSF, this is a militia formation that was created in the 2000s as a way of outsourcing the military's offensive and efforts against rebel movements in Darfur. The RSF evolved quite quickly into a large military force and and I think it's thanks to the abilities of its leader that they managed to acquire some degree of autonomy from the military and stand today almost as an independent force, although formally they are under the authority of the commander in chief. I I think, you know, in many ways they are they've become the equals of the military in political terms. And one important feature of the RSF is that it operates much like a large rural political party, because besides doing militia work, it also does health work, it delivers food supplies, it delivers um, COVID vaccination, it does famine relief. So it's, it's operating in many ways like a, a traditional political party. The third element are the signatories of the Juba Peace Agreement, and these essentially are two former rebel movements in Darfur, the Justice and Equality Movement, and the, led by uh, Jibril Ibrahim, whose brother was sort of the founder of the, the, the movement and, and its staff for many years until Jibril took over. And um, the Sudan Liberation Army forward slash movement, led by Mini Manawi, who, and b- both men signed the UAP's agreement with the interim government, and they negotiated it primarily with the, with the military. Their relationship with forces of freedom of, and change, which is the umbrella coalition that, that stepped in as partner to the, to the military after the deposition of Omar al-Bashir, was from the beginning quite difficult because these are two, in many ways, competing networks of power. While Bashir was in force, they had the common interest of deposing him once that happened, their interests diverged because the political parties of the FFC are very Khartoum derived. These are sort of the old, this is, they have this cosmopolitan feature of them. They have a common experience in the political life of Khartoum, the capital, in, in the educational world of Khartoum University. They are in many ways also a circle of friends and, and people who know each other beyond politics, while the second network are the former armed movements and they come with a different experience and with a different outlook to politics and they don't share that world. They're not socially embedded in in Khartoum and, and often they are strangers to the type of politics that evolved out of the university system, if you like. And these two networks in many ways reflect the 
fracture between urban and rural life in Sudan. And do you think this alliance, you know, between the army on one side, the rapid support forces under General Hameti on the other, and these new armed groups also from Darfur, what's holding this together? And, you know, do you think it can hold together for very long? I mean, it will hold probably long enough for them to survive the transition, to compete. I mean, they are stiff competitors. It's not that you can get rid of them overnight. And the problem is, besides being political actors, these are the main armed actors in the country. So you have two heavily armed formations, which is the army and the and the RSF. And then you have another armed actor that speaks a common language with these two uh, in many ways and understands politics as as something that comes out of a barrel of a gun. I think this this is their this is for the time being their common interest. And I I think they will despite they might not be as eloquent to the people around around Hamdok and the FFC and they might not be as outspoken in their language or they don't really choose the right words and they might have this bumpkin nature to them. But this shouldn't mislead you into underestimating their will. Mm. And why now, do you think? What, what is it that they calculated in, in moving now? Was this about the pressure to hand over to civilian rule before elections, um, according to the uh, original timeline? Was this about sort of maintaining the unity among these different actors on the, on the armed side? Or, or why do you think this happened at this moment? Well, I think for the military, the, it begins in the third June, in the events of third June two thousand nineteen, when they dispelled the major protest camp around the around the army headquarters, and they calculated that this would allow them to overcome the protest movement and have veto power over the transition. Of course, the the relationship in the transition remained difficult. They didn't really re- have complete veto power over the transition. They had to make concessions. And the fracture in the FFC was their opportunity. There was an obvious division in the FFC between the Cuba Peace Agreement signatories and the political parties of the city. And that was the moment when they, if, if we don't strike now, we, we would never strike. So they took to the offensive, I think, at a moment when they could see that their partners were fractured, that the two other partners were not on one mind. The prime minister tried to sort this out by declaring an initiative to unify the FFC and to improve relations between the military and the civilian side of government. That initiative really ran into the sand because the main person who was at at the helm of its execution was quite biased towards one faction of the FFC against the others and excluded uh, representatives of the former rebel movements, I mean the SLA and the, the Sudan Liberation Army and the Mini Manawi and the Justice and Equality Movement and the Jibril. And this tough politicking created the atmosphere that the military could then use as an excuse for the coup. And, and, and these were quite tough tactics to use. And of course, both sides tried to mobilize from their constituencies. The original FFC had, of course, great command over the city and the turnover on 25th October when they organized a large rally in in support of their cause was quite high, while the former rebels had to sort of ship, uh, to mobilize people from from outside Khartoum and organize this protest camp around the, the prime minister's office and around the palace. 
and they they don't have enough traction in Khartoum. They are in many ways outsiders to the Khartoum world, and this gives you this picture of a majority versus a minority. But it is only so when you count Khartoum. But if you start counting beyond Khartoum, you might need to review those numbers. We will be back in a moment, but first a message from our friends at Foreign Policy. The Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. You rarely hear what happens behind the closed doors of the world's biggest agreements, until now. On the new podcast, The Negotiators, Foreign Policy is teaming up with Doha Debates to put listeners in the room. On each episode, you'll hear the story of one mediator, diplomat, or troubleshooter telling the story of one dramatic negotiation. Foreign Policy Deputy Editor Jen Williams hosts The Negotiators. Listen to new episodes every week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the episode. And you've done a, a good job, I think, of painting this this picture of a you know uh, cartoon based, uh, center based political class that is very predominant in in the civilian side of the government, and perhaps whose reach doesn't extend as well to many of the rural areas. So, of course, this this coup has set up the sort of dynamic in many ways that we saw in 2019, when, of course, eventually Bashir was ousted from power, which is that you have vast mobilization on the streets of Khartoum. I'm just wondering if you can tell us about, you know, where this street gets their power, who is mobilizing. Can you talk to us about the the neighborhood uh, resistance committees and their role in this and their role, do you think, moving forward? I think that's a, that's that's probably the most important segment of what I have to say. Both factions, so be they the rebel movements, the former rebel movements, or the FFC parties and the cosmopolitan network they represent, do not necessarily command the audience and the public that was on Khartoum's streets on 31st October. And there you see how popular politics or everyday politics diverges from its expression in, in high political language. And the neighborhood committees date back to probably 2013. They might include some graduates or people who had the experience of the university, but it involved different experiences coming from unemployment and coming from informal labor and coming from school dropouts. And this group of young women and men is crucial to the constitution of these neighborhood resistance committees. They remained quite dormant for many years, but their role was highlighted in the in 2018 2019 where they were practically the tactical units of the protest movement they organized they mobilized they recruited they kept contacts and also they maintained networks of trust at neighborhood level where people would be sort of allowed to enter friends houses and keep them safe and offer them food so it's a it's a different system of political involvement and engagement in the university system from which the the parties that are now in government derive their orientation towards politics and it's also a type of a type of politics that's very close to everyday life and responds to it and feels the difficulties of making a livelihood in the in the poorer neighborhoods of Khartoum 
and thematizes that problem. The experience of 2018 and 2019 gave these neighborhood committees a lot of self-confidence. And you can see it now in the in the evolution of their methods and tactics as they respond to Burhan, because they're putting up more political statements than they did in 2018-19. They're writing more extensive analysis of what they perceive is the deadlock. Um, they are arguing against the entire idea of a, a sort of settlement with the military, and they are demanding a reworking of the entire structure. So uh, they are acquiring sort of their very many radical elements in them and they are radicalizing. And they might be, in, of course, they, are, they oppose the coup, but they do not necessarily support the forces of freedom and change. They oppose the coup because they understand very well that a military takeover would crush the very freedom that they need to move forward vis-a-vis -vis the FFC itself. But it shouldn't be misinterpreted as support of the type of system of government that was in place before 25th October. So you have the military side of the equation, you have the civilian government, and then you have uh, the, the street element, which, which actually sort of, as you're arguing, falls as a, a separate category. Is, the, is there any overarching sort of organization for these neighborhood committees? I mean, how should we think of them? That's their essential, in a way, that's the source of their strength and also the source of their weakness. It's the source of their strength because there's no central decision-making process that somebody could hijack. And it's a weakness because they, they, this means that they do not have a leadership in that, in the sense that, that there are people you could talk to and reach some sort of arrangement. That doesn't exist. And many of these committees are organized as far as I can judge and as far as my own work with them has shown, very horizontally. So there is there's no leadership, leadership structure in them. They did go through a period where they said, well, then we need some sort of coordination committee for the entire city, which they did create and they started meeting up. But these coordination committees that issue joint statements do not have the authority to make a decision on when to attack and when to go back. Mm. And the sort of uh, presence that we saw come out on Saturday, the tens or hundreds of thousands, if not more, uh, protesters, were, were those all organized by these resistance committees? When we talk about the street, is that synonymous with these groups or just a portion of, of who shows up to protest? I mean, they're probably a portion of it, a portion of who shows up at the protest, but the, without the, let's put it another way, Without the resistance committees, you wouldn't get this turnout. Quickly, I wanted to sort of take a step back. We've obviously gone very deep in in the weeds. Um, but, you know, this has now been a two-year transition since the civilians uh, agreed to do this power-sharing deal with the military. I'm just wondering how you rate that two-year transitional period. Obviously, the economic situation has continued to get more and more dire. So has this worked the last two years? And if it hasn't, you know, who, who, which side is really to blame? Well, I mean, I wouldn't pick sides. I wouldn't say there is a side to blame and whether it worked and it didn't work. They had an agenda. Both of them agreed to push through. And you could just look at the concrete things that actually happened. From a military perspective, of course, there were many advantages to these two years, despite the, the, the threatening of their own power. And these were, there was enough consent 
and the FFC contributed to manufacturing that consent to push through a series of very harsh austerity measures that when Bashir attempted pushing them through, he lost power. And they managed to push that through together with the military and with a degree of consent from the general public that were they not the FFC and the civilian leadership wouldn't have been there. So that, that's, a benefit. that's a benefit. These very harsh measures did not improve living conditions for the great majority of people. They improved the health of the state budget, that's true. But this didn't translate into improvements in daily life. And that's one area where the military and their allies would be heavily investing, is to say, we can deliver better results. And the second, of course, is the reorientation of Sudan's foreign policy towards the security architecture of the US in the region, which is Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And these are the major supporters of the coup, Egypt being critical in that regard, um, and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia more or less involved and, and informed. And uh, the Israelis even paid a visit to Burhan uh, uh, in the past week. So you can see that this is the regional environment that supports the coup. And, and that wasn't possible without the involvement of the FFC. Because they needed a civilian face to get uh, Sudan off the list of state sponsors of terrorism. They needed a democratic process of some form that has the label and name of democracy to get past that that deadlock. And of course, they needed somebody to help manufacture consent for normalization of relations with Israel. This is a, a momentous decision for Sudan. And it was the FFC parties who delivered arguments for that and, and, and sort of generated the public opinion that acquiesced to that move. So I think that's an important thing to consider. These, the step towards normalization of relations with Israel was the U.S demand or condition really for pushing Sudan forward in the debt relief world and Sudan then managed to enter the initiative of the heavily indebted countries. This was was done of course with an understanding of the IMF and the World Bank and other partners and Sudan's creditors. Again without the involvement of the civilian side the military alone would never have gotten this off the ground. They needed they needed that partnership. So I think from Burhan's perspective, which in a way he actually said on 25th October when he praised Hamdok very highly and he said, we're very thankful for his involvement. We've achieved great things together. And then he named exactly the items I've been talking to you about. And it is these items that the, that the military probably wouldn't have managed to achieve single-handedly. It needed a different face. Um, so these are the main achievements of the transition. They are, of course, from a perspective of the popular movement, there has been an expansion of public freedoms. You could do politics in Khartoum again. And I think exactly these public freedoms are the things that are being threatened today by Burhan's coup. And what do you think we learned on Saturday with these big protests, of course? Many uh, showed up. We didn't see quite the level of a violent crackdown, although there was some violent crackdown and some deaths, but but not the level that many were fearing. And of course, the coup remains. What what do you think we've learned uh, from that? I think it will be very difficult. I think the main lesson of this movement is you're dealing with a change in the nature of politics in Khartoum. 
the political system we inherited after independence has mostly exhausted itself. And now you have political formations that don't belong to that world, including the militia, including the RSF, which, as I tried to explain, is operating as some sort of rural political party. And for the city, you have this new urban movements that cannot be categorized under, under the political parties of old. So it's as if you're witnessing a, reconfig- a new configuration of political forces, the emergence of new political forces, some of them highly militarized like the RSF, but also these new structures and organizations in the urban sphere. So it's it's uh, it's moving away from the system of old. So the lessons are that you you need to take account of these new changes. You need to take account of this new world of political activists and and neighborhood committees and spontaneous structures that is going to influence politics. They don't dominate them yet. They might not have a a clear single name like like a political party which has a single name, a single leader, a single spokesman. But they will make governance very, very difficult for somebody like Burhan. And they have not, they do not grant him their consent. Essentially, it was a public withdrawal of consent, a public demonstration of disobedience and a statement to Burhan saying this is illegal and and we do not accept it. And you, you need an element of consent to govern. And I think he will face serious problems manufacturing that. I mean, is it tenable for Burhan to continue to to rule without, you know, striking some sort of deal that the street accepts? Well, of course, he he needs to win over more fragments, more sections of the ruling bloc, of the dominant bloc in Sudan's history. I mean, he has the military on his side, the security people, the militia. He had a fragment of these rebels, but he needs some of these cosmopolitans, the well-educated um, middle classes of Khartoum. He needs some representatives from that world. Mm. And, you know, if this does drag on without some sort of a, a deal, what what do you see as the biggest of the uh, of the major risks? Is it violent crackdown on, on protests? Is it that you have a split, perhaps a sort of uh, center-periphery sort of split among these military armed groups and, and that leading to, to conflict? Or, you know, what do you see as the major risk? I think the major risk that I can see is that if this situation continues longer, it will test the unity of the army seriously. And if Burhan continues to be so inefficient as a governor, as a ruler, somebody who cannot generate sufficient support to, to sort of man a rally, this will increase the appetite of junior officers to do something. And if a middle-ranking officer comes forward and attempts a new coup, which probably in this environment is a fairly commonly traded idea in the officer corps. And you might end up with a situation where a part of the army fights another part or fights the RSF, because the RSF will not walk away from central power without a fight. They won't walk away from the level of authority and the level of embeddedness they've achieved in central government. It would also mean a reignition of war between whoever controls power in Khartoum and the former rebel movements who would then become the new rebel movements. I think there is a great risk of a fracturing of these military formations and the 
a generation of new rebellions or intra-factional disputes? You know, we have a number of mediation efforts that are going on by Sudanese, by the United Nations, um, perhaps the African Union. Uh, if you had to guess, how would you uh, see this being resolved if it is, you know, in the, in the coming week or, or coming few weeks? I think the most likely mediation to have a chance is the one that involves the Sudanese themselves. As far as I know, there is at least one attempt by uh, senior journalists, one of the oldest journalists in the country, and prominent businessmen and some academics and politicians who are attempting to mediate a situation where these two sides work with each other again. The concession in that regard, a resolution along that line, along a return to the world before 25th October, is not exactly popular on the streets. Because this, for many, means a return to the system that was the cause of the problem in the first place. And the, the, the radical demand on the street is sort of the withdrawal of the army from politics altogether and the dissolution of the RSFs, because they're quite, quite expansive demands. I think the politicians would be working towards a return, towards a, an arrangement where both sides get something, but not all that they want. But this will bite into the legitimacy of both of them. It will bite into the legitimacy of Hamdok if he comes back as prime minister, because he would have disappointed the more radical elements on the street. It would bite into the legitimacy of Burhan among his own constituency, uh, as he will be seen to have given concessions to the same people he should have got ridden of. Um, so it's going to be a test of the durability of both these political figures. And do you think, you know, ultimately the, the street would have to accept a deal that brings Prime Minister Hamdok back into his position? Or do you think there's, would there be enough resistance to actually continue to mount a, a, a large enough protest campaign to actually veto such a move? To some segment of the street, they, the street would be split around this issue, to be honest. There would be two camps. There would be people who would say, well, if Hamdok is back, then we're happy. And others who would say, no, we want to re we don't want to return to that situation. We want the restructuring of the entire arrangement. Um, and all we don't want is partnership anyway, or altogether. So I think it would, it would be a step that would divide the streets. And um, if you're a, an obnoxious ruler who wants to divide and rule, that would be exactly the thing you should do. <laughs> and I guess that's why Burhan is so keen on getting Hamdok back. <laughs> that's a good reading. So, you know, at the heart of this entire Sudanese transition is really the idea that eventually, as you said, the Sudanese military, the RSF, um, you know, that they will relinquish power eventually. Do you think that's realistic? And how would you actually get there? I think that's a, that's a target that if you don't achieve that target, you will remain locked into a system that produces autocracy on a habitual basis, if you like. It will continuously generate these figures. However, this, this system is embedded in the way rural production is organized. And um, I think one of the problems of doing, of thinking about Sudanese politics, despite people talking all the time about the other factors involved, is that there's very little economic analysis of, of that world. And you, you really, people don't really make the links between 
between what happens in in the countryside and where the money comes from and how the money comes from and how it is made and how it is then spent politically and sudan's production systems at least in the countryside have become highly militarized and they rely on the militia is involved in the in the making of money um in the countryside and one one simple example for instance is the harvest season which is a most of the time a peaceful season where there's not a lot of, where you wouldn't expect, it's a season, a season of plenty, so there's not a lot of, of, uh, of conflict between farmers or, or at, at community level, is now a heavily militarized operation. The army and the RSF are dispatched in their thousands to protect the harvest, to prevent the stealing of produce from the fields. And you can see that this system is continuously being militarized. Livestock, for instance, is... Is, is becoming a highly militarized operation. You need to guard your herds with a lot of guns. And that's one reason why the, the military and the RSF have power in Sudan, is the militarization of its, of its livelihood. So you need to reverse all these entire structures. And that's a great challenge. And I, I'm, I'm not sure I have the answer of how to do that. But I think that, that's where I see most of the problem lies, really, more than... The fact that the military has sort of big businesses or companies, it does, but it also has, has penetrated the way rural life happens and the way production takes place. All right, so we have the street versus the militarized economy, and that's a very sober note, I think, to, to end on. Majdi, thanks, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. As always, The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. You can find more of our work at crisisgroup.org. I'm your host, Alan Boswell, and The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Hawley-Nambi. Crisis Group's weekly global podcast, Hold Your Fire, also interviewed my colleagues Jonas Horner and Marithi Mutiga about the coup in Sudan last week, so check that out for more background on this story. 